The following is a presentation of the Belly Up Sports Media Network. Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go belly up, so we made it our name, and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic Podcast, Charles Follis was the first of 17 blacks to play pre- and post-NFL. Players like Fritz Pollard and Paul Robeson carried the torch in the 1920s, but by the mid-1930s, those numbers dropped to zero. There was no excuse, but there were reasons. You're behind the mic with Michael Neal Jr. Somewhat of a rough start. I got my papers. I'm ready. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Thanks for joining me here today. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in. This show is for you guys and gals. It's cool if you already know this stuff. Congratulations. But there's always someone else who doesn't. This show is for those who aren't as up on NFL history. They don't know as much about NFL history. So I'm just here to do three things. That is enlightened teach and learn it is the behind the mic podcast presented by billy of sports i am your host michael neal jr billy of sports podcast network billy up media billy up sports media also go to bellyupsports.com check us out on megaphone that's our new home base also apple podcast spotify google podcast amazon music stitcher iHeartRadio, youtube all those favorites so i must say this right now um just a thought that I had over the weekend because we've been continuing this Black History 365, right? Uh, so I'm I'm not keeping everything just to February. I'm doing some shows going into the month of March, as you can see. And we're talking about the first 17. The first 17 African-Americans that played pre and post NFL, right? Um, I had a thought while I was studying and reading and things you know the things that blacks and minorities go through you know um in the historical past what they went through in the historical past can't really be compared to today uh there's some bad things that still go on these days but the way things were back then it was terrible i'm not even talking about you know those who were put on the slave ships (laughs) that was worse uh but it was all of it was just inhuman um, for someone to do another person that way. But there were some pretty inhuman or inhumane things that were people were doing even in the 1900s, the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, when you put it to sports, thinking about what African-American athletes had to endure both on and off the field, and not just African-Americans, just minorities in general, as well as women. Um, you know, we had to tell these people before us, Thank you. Thank you for paving the way. Thank you. I've said it, you know, before, and I still haven't found where I read that. That it sucks to be a trailblazer. It sucks to be first. It's not easy being first. But when you get through it, there's a purpose at the end of it. You may not see it all, but you'll see it. uh, Hopefully you can see, you know, the other end of the rainbow, so to speak. But um, you know, the good things on the other end of what you had to endure, as many of them did not. Um, but I'm just glad, you know, even right now living in these days, I mean, it's, it's, it's still not, 
you know, all roses, but, you know, tell me when it ever is. Uh, but it was just, you know, seeing and reading everything else, you know, some of the more the more details and things. I just had that thought because there are some athletes these days that would complain and, and gripe and, you know, and it's like, you don't know what I'm going through. I mean, that may be true to an extent because you have to respect where different people are. Uh, but then when you look and see what someone else had to deal with and you didn't have to even sniff that, I think it should make you think. But these pre and post NFL men had to endure a high level of blatant racism. It sometimes amazes me that they even allowed them to play at all back then. These guys were getting ball, mauled and beat down, beat up on the field, had to dress in their cars in separate places away from the stadium, sleep in different places. Uh, they couldn't eat with their teammates, and some of their teammates and coaches didn't want to eat with them anyway. Uh, they were on the coach, those on coaching staffs that may or may not have wanted to use them, etc. But they endured. I'm only telling you part of their story, and we began that on last week. But first, let me correct myself. I said last week, and it was to be noted uh, that during that uh, Henry McDonald, he was the sole professional football player at the time in 1915. Of course, GW, um, Gideon Smith, not GW, Gideon Smith, who played with the Canton Bulldogs for one game. He was a lineman that played for one game pre-NFL. Um, but McDonald, I said that it would be another four years and five seasons until the next one came through. That, 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 wasn't, that wasn't accurate. It was actually two years before Fritz Pollard came along in 1919. And on that note, just doing a little quick review of what we – Left off at last week, of course, the first African-American to ever play professional football that actually notated, signed a contract to play was Charles Fallis. He played for Shelby AC from 1904 to 1906. Uh, most of these guys are halfbacks, by the way. And then there was halfback Doc Baker, who played with the Akron Indians, 1906 to 1908. And... Uh, had a couple years in between before playing one final season in 1911 and he ended up leaving pro football or Follis left because of injury even though he continued playing some basketball and some baseball and Baker well because of a gambling scandal the NFL kind of slowed that well not the NFL professional football excuse me kind of slowed down um and he's like I can't make any money doing this so I'm out Henry McDonald played for the Rochester Jeffersons uh, remember, he was born in Port-au-Prince, was raised actually in New York, played with Oxford, and also he ended up with the Jeffersons all in the same year professionally in 1911. And he was the longest tenured at the time pre-NFL. He played seven years for the Jeffersons. And the note of him between 1911 and 1917, he says, other than the incident where he was about to get, you know, hands laid on him by Earl Greasy Neal, the Hall of Fame coach, um, saying white is white and black is black. And where I'm from, <laughs> that's that's just how it is. And Thorpe had to stand in and intervene and say, hey, look, we're here to play football. And McDonald said he never had a problem after that. Still a little hard to believe, but he's talking about on the field. Huh. I'll take him at his word. Of course, Charlie Smith, again, he played tackle for the Canton Bulldogs for a single game. Post-NFL, of course, for his pilot showed up as one of the first stars of the league. But before there was a league actually formed called the NFL, wasn't called the NFL until 1922. Before then, it was the APFC. 
you know they changed it actually and ended up being the APFA the American Professional Football Association they stuck with that and then the NFL two years later but Pollard was the first star the first african-american star and one of two stars that were in the league both minorities just so happened jim thorpe was the other and he was actually named the president of the league and pollard played uh for eight seasons he played for the akron pros in two stints from 1919 to 1921 and finished up with them in 1926 um and he played with the milwaukee badgers the hammond pros and the providence steamroller um by the time he was unceremoniously let go he had put a footprint in the NFL as being the first African-American head coach, as well as the first quarterback officially lining up behind center on many plays and actually managing and coaching the team, even though he was named a co-head coach. He was the head coach. Also, we had Paul Robeson, who only played two years. The Renaissance man uh, was recruited by Fritz Pollard. Also, Bobby Marshall, who played with the Rock Island Independents and also had a one-year stint with the Duluth Kellys in 1925. John Shelburne, who was a track star coming out uh, out of college, played one season in 1922 with the Hammond Pros. And then there was the one I had the least amount of information on, James Turner, who was a halfback out of Northwestern, it was, played one season in 1923 for the Milwaukee Badgers. And then here we are. So, as we get ready to embark on this one, you have to understand where we're going with this is that there was a ban on African-American players from 1933, well, actually 1934, there were none, going all the way to 1946 when they finally signed black players again. And there's reasons. Uh, there were no good excuses at all, just only excuses. There were some reasons why but they gave excuses, but the excuses were poor, which to me, that means there was no excuse. But as far as highlighting the players, let's go ahead and finish those up. First, you have Jay Mayo Inc. Williams, who played with the Canton Bulldogs, also the Hammond Pros, the Dayton Triangles, and uh, for the Cleveland Bulldogs as well. So, Inc. was, Williams was on that 1916 Brown team that went to the Rose Bowl he was a freshman that year and he was not only a teammate and roommate of Fritz Pollard back then but he and Pollard were lifelong friends Williams like Paul Robeson was recruited by Fritz Pollard to play in the NFL in 1921 he did so again with the Canton Bulldogs then he went off to the Hammond Pros and he was a talented uh, halfback and he had those stops with Dayton and Cleveland but his legacy actually wasn't in pro football he played in college he played in uh as a professional but his thing was the fact that well his legacy was going to be cemented into the blues hall of fame in 2004 and according to the el dorado news times ink williams this was written back in 19 excuse me 19 2021 as a matter of fact it was put out there in like 2021 that according to the el dorado news times uh, Ink Williams started working with Paramount Records in 1924. That was a subsidiary of a furniture company that made record players. Williams became a talent scout and then a producer for what was called Race Records. And they focused their attention on African-Americans. And Williams recorded artists uh, such as Ma Rainey, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Mahalia Jackson, Muddy Waters, 
and Roosevelt Sykes. That's a career, man, and many, 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 many more. So uh, it was just a couple of examples, though, of what black players dealt with in the times, um, you know, when uh, they were playing in those 20s. And I have to refer back to this book, a really good book called Outside the Lines, written by Charles Ross. And he talked about Ink Williams and describing uh, their relationships with white players. And he said, quote, this is Williams saying, quote, they were very poor in some instances. Uh, also, where Williams and Fritz Pollard, they were sitting in a hotel in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, they were paged out of the dining room to the office where they were told they did not allow colored people to eat at their hotel. Hmm. Not surprising, right? And also in Canton, Ohio, this, I still can't believe I read this. Williams was actually sitting at the table with his teammates. He was allowed to continue to eat with them, but they put a screen around the man while he's sitting at the table eating. A screen. <laughs> like he had some kind of disease or something. You gotta be kidding me. But no doubt, Fritz Pollard had a hand in recruiting a couple other players of color into the NFL. You had Ink Williams and Paul Robeson, very talented guys. Again, I have to go back and say this again. These guys were All-Americans or uh, not just first team, second team, whatever team, All-Americans. And, you know, they went to these white, prestigious white colleges, but they stood out. They were stars on their on their teams. And I, every school uh, that some of these guys come out of were just all white schools. But for the most part, yeah, there were no HBCUs. Just put that right there. No HBCUs. Okay, um, in 1922, Pollard had moved on to the Milwaukee Badgers, and he was joined by University of Iowa All-American Fred Duke Slater. And Slater, to my notes, Slater was a six-four tackle. He was a two-way lineman coming out of Iowa, and he was actually the NFL's first African-American lineman. Pro football's first lineman as an African-American, obviously, was Gideon Smith. He only played the one game. But cool, he did it. Slater actually was posthumously, I said it right. I'm not going to say it again. He was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2020. Uh, he played with the Milwaukee Badgers, with Pollard. He also played with Rock Island that same year uh, for a couple seasons from 22 to 25 before finishing his career with the Chicago Cardinals from 1926 to 1931. And he actually played the longest as an African-American. And the guy was uh, all-American coming out of Iowa, uh, all Big Ten. So you knew the guy was good and knew what he was doing. Uh, and that got him 90 games in 10 years. McDonald played seven. Pollard played for eight. You know, that that's saying something. You didn't see African-Americans play that long. But this guy blocked for Hall of Famers such as Fritz Pollard, Jimmy Coselman, Jim Thorpe, Ernie Nevers. But yet... He's not on the 1920s All-Decade team. I don't get that. I think they may have finally put Fritz Powers' uh, face on it. But if you see any of these NFL books, I have two of them. You have the NFL 100, and then I have this other one, the 75 Seasons book. It's those really large books. Almost resembles the Bible your grandparents had that was wrapped in plastic in the living room. Uh, maybe not as thick. Uh, but, you know, they, they have these paintings for each decade. And then you turn the page, you may not know the names. You can look at their faces and tell who they're supposed to be. But if you don't know the names, you got the silhouette, you know, on another page. It says, number one is this guy. Number, You know, I, I don't remember seeing Fritz Pollard on there at all. Definitely not Duke Slater. Maybe I need to double check. 
Um, but this guy should have been. He's a Hall of Famer for a reason. He was all NFL in 1923, 25, 26, and 29. And basically, he was second team for seven years, seven times. But like all of these great guys that had, uh, for the most, they had something planned after their playing days were over because they knew they weren't going to get much of a chance. If they got a chance, let's take it. But you see these one year, two years, and then you have McDonald, Slater, and Pollard who are playing seven, eight, and 10 years. Well, Slater was a law school grad and he passed the bar while he was playing uh, with the Chicago Cardinals in 1928. He ended up being the Chicago assistant DA and then he was Chicago's second black judge ever in 1948. And then in 1960, he was the first African-American to serve on the Superior Court in Chicago I mean you don't see that I mean he's breaking barriers down not just in sports but also just in life of course you know in, in his NFL career going back to that 1926 Red Grange remember he started it on his own league the first AFL uh, that only lasted a year Slater played for the Rock Island team that had jumped from the NFL to Grange's league of course, after it folded, that's how Slater ended up back in the NFL midseason with the Chicago Cardinals and remained there the rest of his career. And by 1927, though, Slater was the only black player left after a league high of five the season before in 1926. There were five. Jay Inky Williams was gone. Fritz Pollard was gone. And the other two that were, had remained were Solomon Butler and Dick Hudson. Now, Sol, Sol Butler is what they called him, not Solomon, S-O-L, Butler. He was a halfback um, in the NFL. But some of the first pictures that popped up when I Googled this guy, it was a bunch, all of them. There's nothing showing him playing football. It's all track photos. And this is because Butler was a track man, and he competed in the 1920 Summer Olympics as a long jumper. He was a sprinter as well, but he competed as a long jumper. Now, I read three different things, but this is the one I'm going with because it looked like it came from the official website uh, that where he went to school. Butler pulled a muscle in his leg during his tryout after he broke the record set in 1900 by jumping 24 feet, eight inches. And then when it came to the actual competition, uh, he jumped 21 feet and some inches, uh, but you know, and he was really unable to finish. One of the photos is them carrying him off the field. Another one is him laying on the ground. You know, so he he did something. Some say it was a pulled muscle. Others say he strained a tendon in his leg or in his knee. But his NFL career in 1923, that's when it began uh, with the Rock Island Independence. And he like, he kind of overlapped a lot. Uh, 23, he goes from the Independence to the Hammond Pros. At 23 to 24, he goes to the Akron Pros. 24, uh, he, he stays, ends up going back to Hammond two seasons later. 1925, he didn't play at all, apparently. He played with Hammond in 1926, and then he finished that same year with the Ken Bulldogs. Um, but this is a guy who's another one of those great athletes as an African-American. He also pitched in the Negro Leagues for the Kansas City Monarchs. So the guy could do a lot of things, <laughs> a lot of things. But sadly, on December 1st, 1954, Butler, who was working at Chicago's Tavern uh, Pappy's Lounge, he had put a dude out. Hey, get out. He was harassing a waitress. Uh, another account says he, the guy was ha harassing two women. Officially, it was a waitress. 
uh, and the guy Jimmy Hill that he put out comes back and shot Butler in the hip and the chest. Butler died in Chicago's Provident Hospital at the age of 59, taken out way too soon, way too soon. The other one, Dick Hudson, he was a back, uh, a halfback who played three seasons, 1923 for the Minnesota Marines and two seasons with the Hammond Pros from 25 to 26. Hudson was actually refused a tryout with the Rock Island Independence in 1923. So it, you would think he would have he would have been there with Soul Butler, but he was refused a tryout. Um, but you know he did make that Minnesota Marine squad. Harold Bradley, he was a guard, another lineman uh, for the Chicago Cardinals in 1928. He was a teammate of Duke Slater. He didn't play any college football at all, not at all. And then there's also David Myers uh, because after that 28 season. All right, so you're going to see a lot that uh, Duke Slater was the only African-American left, okay? And uh, he was, at least for a year, until Meyer shows up in 1930 with the Stanton Island Stapletons and the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1931. He was both a guard and a halfback. And Myers, he was actually more interesting in college than he was in the NFL. Not saying the guy couldn't play. Again, they're not getting a lot of years. Uh, not a lot of chances here, right? They're limited. Um, but he was an offensive guard and a halfback out of NIU. And he actually played quarterback for the Violets. Um, and uh, you know, read up on David Myers. David Myers was an athlete. And, you know, him taking over as a starting quarterback, one of the few uh, African-American starting quarterbacks. And even at in college, Saul Butler was a four-year starter at his school. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I, I want to say the name and I'm about to butcher it. The University of Dubuque. Please correct me if I'm wrong. It's in Iowa. That's all I know. Uh, but he was a four-year starter as a quarterback. So you had some guys that could play and Myers, you know, it wasn't uncommon for when they ended up having to play South in particular at the University of Georgia where they said, look, we're playing you guys NIU, but NYU, but he can't play. We're not going to play you if you play these black players. I think one elected to sit in the stands and, the, and, and Myers just didn't dress at all or didn't show up at all. It was one or the other. But, you know, and that was twice, I think, in his college career that he had to do that or just twice in that one season. But um, two seasons in the NFL, though, he played 13 games on both offense and defense. These last three players I just talked about, Myers, Bradley, Hudson, four players, Myers, Bradley, Hudson, and Butler, all were talented, didn't go get a whole lot of play, obviously due to the times, those problems during those times. Um, around this time, the NFL was gaining a little bit of steam and popularity. And of course, they started in 1920 with 14 teams. In 1926, they had 22 teams, but by 1929, it went down to well, by 1932, a low of eight teams. Three things, three factors that would play a large role in the removal of blacks from pro football for the next 12 years. Number one was Red Grange, the AFL. 1926, he started his own league after signing that $100,000 contract the year before. Big, uh, the, you know, the, the white star that... A lot of those NFL owners and the people of the, of the time, they really wanted because they didn't have one yet, okay? 
Grange was the first superstar. He had a 19-game contract because after the season was over with, they did some barnstorming. Barnstorming means they played games all over the place. Think of your AAU team. You got a uh, you got a regular season and then you go playing different little tournaments and stuff, right? So they're playing games back to back to back. Wasn't one game a week. No, that's that wasn't the case. So after that, he wanted more money. Uh, Hallis and his guys, they said, no, we're not going to cut you any more money, but you, know, you can stay for this. He wasn't going. He and his agent at the time, Charles C.C. Pyle, P-Y-L-E, Cash and Carry Pyle, uh, they started their own league, the AFL, the first American Football League. Nine teams were included, including uh, the NFL's Rock Island Independence, where Deuce later played. He was the only black player to play in that league, which I guess that was cool. You know what I mean? But one by one, the teams folded up. And when the league shut down operations, that left players scrambling for jobs. Where do you think they went? You basically had eight more teams. You had more. I'm just going to say it like it is. Historically, you had more white players, you know, because the league was overwhelmingly white anyway, right? And so not a lot of black players were being not only recruited or brought in, uh, well, you know, because there was no draft. So you know, they, they were not being brought in at all, right? And so who was going to get these jobs? Well, there's a reason for the job situation too. The Great Depression, which is number two. The stock market crashed in 1929. And that left up to what? I think at the time, I think it went from 2 million and a couple years later it went up to 8 million jobless. 15 million according to history.com. 15 million people jobless. This lasted from 1929 to 1939. And so you're not going to have, uh, at the time, they didn't want to see a black man get paid any more than a white guy. All right. So, you know, you have uh, an unfair thing that's going on already. Um, you're not bringing in a lot of black players anyway, whether they can play or not. And when you do bring them in, they're not staying very long. Very, very few of them get to stay in professional football because of the prejudice. Um, but foot, pro football was not immune. Is you know, That was another way to get paid. I didn't know this, though. In all my years, I didn't know that. I didn't think of the the great depression is being worldwide it was worldwide i just thought just america you know and and it's funny that me and my wife were sitting watching king kong uh, it was the king kong that was uh what jack black i think it was what 2000 2009 or something like that and if you watch that movie the beginning of it shows you know they're in new york right and so you see the uh the shack houses the shotgun houses or whatever the little i don't even know if what you call them, they look like uh, porta potties, you know, those size houses. And, uh, you know, you got you know, all these people in soup lines, and you have, you know, all these poor people, these people getting put out. So you have all of this stuff happening, and that's what the times were like. And you have professional football. So, <laughs> but here's the thing not everybody was going to get that chance. And you have, all of these teams, they go from 22 teams down to eight teams by the 1932, <laughs> or at least cut down 10 teams, not just not to mention there is no more AFL. So what do you think was going to happen? Those jobs, and, I, and the historian, I do not remember his name from the 75 season, he says, well, my God, you know, the, the thinking of it was, my God, this black guy's taking a white man's job was simply the end of it. And so that wasn't going to happen. Um, and then number three, number three, at the NFL owners meetings, 
on July 9, 1932, the league would expand with the addition of the Boston Braves and their owner, George Preston Marshall. Marshall uh, actually, he wanted his team to be in Washington where he lived, which happened to be south of the Mason-Dixon line. John Eisenberg, he wrote the book called uh, The League. Very good book. Oh, I'm getting deeper and deeper into it. It describes all the potential problems that this new franchise could have, especially if they were moved to Washington instead of Boston. In my opinion, it may not have been that much different than what was being experienced, but, you know, okay, I'm just saying. Uh, but the problems that would have been in Boston or in Washington for um, an African-American, I mean, flip a coin, right? But, and I'm gonna have to quote from his book, a Southern mentality prevailed in the city as did Jim Crow laws with many restaurants, theaters, and public venues strictly segregated, end quote. Marshall tried to talk to commissioner Joe Carr into moving his team to Washington instead, but the new owner, uh, Marshall would buy into the Boston potential, okay? Because it was a prominent sports town already. Think about the Boston Red Sox, the Sox, all right? You got the Boston Red Sox there, right? George Marshall, obviously, every time I've mentioned him, I talk about, you know, how bad he was as far as a racist. But the guy, for all his racial flaws, Marshall was somewhat of a genius. I look at him kind of like Jerry Jones, you know, for example. And some of it was good and some of it was bad. You got good Jerry, you got bad Jerry, right? He was a mailing owner at times, um, but he actually helped push the league into a direction of making more money by making it a lot more exciting than their college football counterpart. I didn't know that Marshall was an actor at one point. He knew show business. So I think that's where a lot of that came from and a very good businessman. He started these these corn laundries or whatever it was. And that's another reason, uh, way that he made his money. But it was Marshall that told the league owners and his commissioner that needed to liven up the game, not just follow after the college football rules. All this highlighted in Eisenberg's book in chapter seven, it was called New Ideas. He wanted the goalpost moved from the back of the end zone to the front to make field goals more easier in order to eliminate ties. He proposed moving the football 10 yards in from the sideline to give the offense more room to operate. And he put an emphasis on throwing the football, which he's calling down from his personal phone to his head coach, throw the ball more. He was doing that during his career. And then also having an Eastern and Western division and then a championship game instead of all this you know, everybody's in one straight line when you look at a piece of paper. Split them up and put the two champions of both divisions together and let them play in a final championship game. And they did just that. Um, and he said, this is Marshall's quoting. I'm quoting Marshall. I realize you men know your football inside and out, but the way I look at it, we are in show business. And when the show becomes boring, you throw it away and put more interesting one, a more interesting one in its place. That's why I want to change the rules. I want to give the public the kind of show they want, end quote. And he was right, but here's where he was wrong. He believed that blacks were bad for business, All right? That's just what it was. He believed that blacks were bad for, for business. It just so happened with all of his good advice that he was giving the NFL owners during these meetings, you can't tell me he didn't propose shutting out black players. Bringing in Marshall, any way you'll slice it, you know, he pushed over the top 
with the other owners, players, and coaches, what some of them were probably already thinking, no more black players. Some of them were thinking it. Some of them, I think, just went along with it and didn't agree. I believe that Art Rooney was one of those. He didn't agree with it, but he just went along with it and, you know, because they came in in 1933. We'll get to that right here in a second. Joe Lillard and Ray Kemp were the last two African-Americans to play pro football. This is after Duke Slater retires, right? In 1931, the next year, Joe Lillard, who was a halfback for the Chicago Cardinals those last two seasons in 32 and 33. Lillard was a 6'2", 195-pound halfback out of Oregon. Superstar. He was the only black player in the NFL in 1932, and he had a stamp on his forehead as being a disciplinary problem. And all the things that I've read about this man, and there's really no way of knowing how true it is, and the book actually says this as well, and I agree with it 1,010%. But I'll say this, from the things I read about Lillard, that this was a guy that was kind of tired of racism. He was one of the guys that was going to push back. He was always getting into fights. He was getting tossed out of games here and there. Um, even though he was the best player on the field a lot of times for a bad Cardinals team, by the way. Um, he just wasn't going to take it like some of his predecessors did. He wasn't going to do that. Um, he was also getting beaten up on the field as well as having the experience that most blacks had off it. And I'll quote again. This is again from outside the lines. Charles Ross in 1935, Coach Paul Schistler. Now, this is the guy who took over for... Um, was uh, Coach Shavini, Shavigny, the year before John Shavigny, I think that's his name. Uh, in 1933, he conceded as much when he noted that Lillard had been a victim of racism. He was a, a fine fellow. This is Schistler talking. Not as rugged as most in the pro game, but very clever. But he was a marked man, and I don't mean that just the Southern boys took it out on him either. After a while, whole teams, Northern and Southern alike, would give Joe the works. Think about it. He was the last one. And the next one I'm going to talk about only played a total of four games, if my math serves me correctly. Okay? So he, he was the last one in those last two years. So they, they were taking it out on him. Um, and I'd have to take him out. That's what he said. That's what the coach said. He went on, the rest of the league took it out on us. We had to let him go for our own sake and for his too. Apparently, he had been suspended while at Oregon. Okay, this is going back to his Oregon days because he supposedly played a couple of games of semi-pro baseball with the Gilkerson Union Colored Giants of Chicago the previous summer. Okay, he was paid to drive the team bus, but he played only, if you let him tell it, he only played in emergency situations only. See college football, nothing new under the sun. But um, Lillard just decided to come out of college altogether, dropped out of school. I mean, he continued to play a couple of games, but then it was before USC, he was declared ineligible. Eventually he said, all right, no more college. He played for some barnstorming teams, some all-star pro football teams. And then he was invited to play with the Cardinals in 1932. This dude could run, pass, kick and was clearly the best player on again a bad squad 
but he and the head coach at the time, Jack Shavigny, did not get along. The coach took Lillard in and out of the starting lineup on multiple occasions. He said that Lillard, would, he missed practice or practices. He was late or he disobeyed team rules. And these things would ultimately lead to another suspension. But after playing some pro basketball with the all-black Savoy Big Five of Chicago, this is, you know, after he was suspended during the 32 season, okay, from Chicago. Um, he was reinstated to the Cardinals in 1933, but by then they were coached by Schisler. The team was still bad, but Lillard, who barely started any of the games, still led Chicago in yards and in scoring. The black newspaper said that Lillard was the best player in the NFL point blank period he was at the time i believe that um but at the end of that he ended up out of the league again uh he went on to play actually with fritz pollard's brown bombers in the black nfl league or well, the black not nfl the black professional league uh what going as far as 1935 so he still continued to play sports he played more baseball and basketball and uh was a great athlete now the other one, the very the last one, Ray Kemp, he was a tackle for the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1933. And that same year the league had added the, a new franchise, which was the Pittsburgh Pirates before they were the Steelers. Uh, they were owned by Art Rooney. Guess who played the season opener on a Wednesday night in 1933? It was Ray Kemp and the Pittsburgh Pirates versus Joe Lillard and the Chicago Cardinals at Pittsburgh's Forbes Field. And according to Eisenberg's book, Kemp recalled that the Pirates head coach, the player coach, by the way, he was a player and head coach. Um, <laughs> his name was Forrest Jap Dows, J-A-P, told his team, and I'm not going to say the whole line, I'm quoting partially, we've got to get that N-word out of there. Talking about out of the game because Kemp said that Lillard was tearing them a new one. He, they, they couldn't they couldn't do anything with the guy. He was just that good. And the crazy thing is that the coach pulled Kemp to the side. You know, we got to get this N-word out. He pulled Kemp to the side. They're going back out on the field. He said, look, I wasn't talking about you. You know, I was talking about, basically, I was talking about Lily. Big difference. <laughs> but um, three games into that season, though. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Let me go back. Lily got kicked out of that game. So, and I also read um, and just about, because I think, it was kind of known that Lillard just was not going to take it. I wouldn't call him a hothead. Um, but, I mean, what can you do when you got 100 people against one person? You know what I mean? The players on the field, the people in the stands, even your teammates are against you. At some point, you're probably going to blow your top. He got tossed out of that game, which was the reason why the Cardinals lost that game, as a matter of fact. But Kemp, he goes to Art Rooney. Um, because at some point, he, well, let's put it this way, three games into the season, he was released. Kemp was released. And Dowds was the player coach, right? But he and Kemp played the exact same position. <laughs> so you do I mean, you do the math. Kemp goes to Art Rooney, he complains. Rooney refuses to overrule his head coach. And the reason that I read why he didn't was because they was going to keep the best 22, the, the 22 that well not necessarily the best 22 the 22 that were um more experienced that was that was the reasoning behind him being released okay um kemp he goes back to work at the steel mill 
Uh, and then Pittsburgh, some weeks later, they ask him to come back. They call him up again. He goes uh, back, what, and has two days worth of practice before the game against the New York Giants at the Polo Grounds. Of course, he couldn't stay at the team hotel where, you know, or, or he couldn't be served either. His teammates were at the Manhattan Hotel while Kemp had to stay in Harlem at the YMCA. Hmm, classy. That turned out to be his final game of his NFL career. And according to Kemp, when it came down to the hotel stay, the NAACP wanted to sue both the Pirates and the hotel for discrimination. Kemp actually came to the defense of Art Rooney saying, and I'm quoting Ray Kemp, okay? He invited me to play for his team. He just has a couple of guys running it, no doubt, who are racist. But give him a little time and he'll straighten all this out. He probably doesn't even know this is going on, which he didn't. I think this was a situation where Rooney was owning the team, but he wasn't the owner that was going to the games and all that stuff. He was letting somebody else run everything. Who those other people are, I don't know yet. I'm not going to pretend to know. But if they were the ones who was, he was putting the football stuff in the football hands and he was just the owner, he probably was at the house, you know, with his family. You know, I, I don't know. Um, but he said he didn't. He, he didn't. Kip was a Pittsburgh native uh, and an honorable mentioned All-American at Duquesne University. In 1934, Ray Kemp, he went to embark on a 39-year career at Bluefield State, Lincoln University, and Tennessee A&I College as a successful coach and athletic director. I believe... That whites just didn't want to compete against blacks, you know. And, and I would—I'm just going to say it like it is. From what I'm seeing and reading, and this isn't an opinion necessarily, because they were better. They didn't—they didn't want to compete. Um, I have a testimony of my own when it comes down to coaching football, youth football. I experienced some of the same thing, where you had some, and I seen it. I seen it from afar as well where you had a league that, you know, they couldn't say you couldn't play, but they would pick their ball up and move to another league and get as far away from uh, either the competition with blacks or the culture of blacks. I don't know, all right? And, and I can understand, you know, the mindset, but it still doesn't give any excuse or reason at all. It, because, I mean, it just, it's, it's, some of it's just wrong. I'm just gonna call it like it is. Some of it's just wrong. But, you know, either you want to compete or you don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> We're people too. But um, you, you had that same mentality even back then. With all of the stuff that happened, and then the, Kemp and Lillard being the final two, right? Think about it. These reasonings. You got a sport. That's not how anybody's extracurricular map. They don't have that. Not everybody had that, um, that uh, what do you call it, discretionary income to just drop it on a football game. I don't think they were like busting heads at NFL games, to be honest with you. Obviously, it probably cost a whole lot more to go to a college football game that was more popular or a Major League Baseball game than it did a pro football game. But it's not high on the map. And the times as well as the sport was dominated by white men. In number, very few blacks were allowed to play. Those few blacks went to white colleges and were all Americans for the most part, or at least they were stars on their teams. One league folds up in the NFL, uh, which already had been reduced to 10 teams. They didn't re-sign the few black players that were still playing in 1926. 
the Great Depression hits, not, not, not the NFL, the AFL folded up, okay? AFL folds up. Then the Great Depression hits, and the NFL was probably the last thing on people's minds. Spending their money on the game, not to mention, not one that's popular, not to mention the few jobs that were available were going to give, be given to whites. And the topper is that you bring in a blatantly racist owner that shows up with great ideas, but it's hard for me to believe that those ideas weren't completely ignored. They, they put a lot of that stuff in. Two seasons after he arrives, there's no blacks in the league anymore for the next 12 years. Of course, he was the last to integrate his team, George Preston Marshall, in 1961. And that took someone putting his arm behind his back. Um, it's disappointing, but not surprising that, uh, you know, you had some owners who, you know, save Marshall, all denied that there was any kind of gentleman's, gentleman's agreement to keep blacks out of pro football for 12 years. But from what I'm, what I read is not only did they have the official business that was written down and put pen to paper, right? But they also had drinks and conducted off the record business as well. Can't tell me that even those things weren't talked, not only talked about, but implemented. It just was. It just was. And I, I will say this. I, I, I had to tell myself before I did this show that I wanted to be careful about what I said. I, I want to be accurate and I want to be fair. I will say this. And I think I said it earlier in the show anyway. I don't remember. But there were some that that were that were prejudiced. I mean, you had a lot of prejudiced people back then. And then just because they they were with the pro, you know, with pro football, you look at the TV now, you know, you got uh, all these pictures of George Hallis and Tim Mara and, and, uh, and, and all of, you know, Art Rooney and, and, and you see these, even the players at the time. I, mean, I, I knew of Greasy, Earl Greasy Neal, but here's the thing, we don't know these people. We didn't know these people. We don't even know some of the people that's playing now. We pretend like we do because we get to see them on TV wear their jerseys. But then when you find out exactly what they're about, then it's kind of a turnoff, right? Well, it's the same thing here. You know, some they had their flaws, um, and I, I, I forgive them for that. Um, even George Preston Marshall. I can't hold that over his head. I mean, the dude was wrong for the way that he did things, and there was just people like that back then. Um, there were some accusations that were thrown out by, by players of the time. And I'll tell you about that in a second. Um, because, they, I mean, they were there. And then it would be their word against somebody else's, right? But I do believe that there were some that went with the system. And there were those who actually were for the system. Does that make sense? They went with, okay, well, we're just not signing blacks. I've, I've said this before. Tech Schramm, he said it straight out. He said that it's something you just didn't do it. Sign black players. You just didn't do it at the time. And he had been around for a long time. You just didn't do it at the time. That's what he said. So it wasn't something that was going to be put down on paper, but they said it. I mean, I mean, they, they did it. The proof is that there was nobody signed. Um, what do you expect some of these guys to say? They, they were ended up being, they, a lot of these guys were interviewed, these owners were interviewed in the 70s. And they're either Hall of Fame level or they had black players that were causes of their success at the time. Do you think you think they really were going to cop to it? I mean, you had George Hallis on record, for instance, you know, being interviewed, and he had some lame uh, things to say uh, <laughs> um, as as a comeback. So, I mean, take Hallis for example, and I'm, I don't mean to pick on George Hallis. I'm sorry, Bears fans, but here it is. 
Fritz Pollard had plenty to say about the man uh, who was a Chicago legend. And Pollard's from Chicago, right? He's from Illinois, rather. Uh, he said that Hallis uh, basically used him um, that basically to help get the league recognition. And uh, can you please spot the lie? Because they needed stars. Fritz Pollard and Jim Thorpe were the two biggest football stars that were playing in the NFL at the time. They were two. They they were known coast to coast. Uh, and then uh, you know you have uh, a league that needed stars. And it wasn't until they got their true you know future white star, their first white star in Red Grange in 1925, and that's what started putting the game on the map. And I think they thought they was going to continue to ascend, which to a degree they did, even after Red Grange made his exit and then came back and then fizzled out at the end. But Fritz Pollard, he said that he, Fritz, that George Hallis used him to get everything that he could. And then after he used me and got power, he raised the prejudice barrier. That's what Fritz Pollard said. Now, uh, he, he even called George Hallis prejudiced. He, he, that's what he called it but Hallis said that Pollard was lying in the, in the mid 1970s during the interview and he told them his skin tone didn't matter but get this when he was asked why there were no blacks in the NFL for those 12 years he basically said he didn't know and, and I'm gonna quote probably the game didn't have the appeal to black players at the time Well, when they don't know about it and a few that do know about it and, and they're not invited in, you you don't bother to scout the black parts of college football, then, I mean, you know what I mean? And you know the system just as well as anybody. He went to the University of Illinois. So, and all of these guys, they knew how it was back then. There's very, very few blacks that were allowed in. And those blacks, when they did play on these white teams, those are the ones you were going after. Why'd you stop? That's all I want to know. Why, why did you stop? Now, to his credit, uh, I guess, well, I don't even want to say to his credit, but I'll just say this. Hallis in 1940, he did want to sign Kenny Washington six years before the Rams did, which was seven years too late, to be told. Six years too late. Uh, Kenny Washington should have won the Heisman. I would argue he should have won the Heisman Trophy coming out of UCLA. He even drafted uh, George Talafaro. Talafaro decided, eh, I'm going to play with the AAFC because they're actually bringing in black players. You guys are not. You know, and they signed, you know, Kenny Washington. Uh, the Rams did. Uh, and Woody Strode, Strode was gone. They cut him after one year. Now, did, this, did the stuff start to build and get better after that? Yeah. And the Bears, as well as the Steelers and all these other teams, they, they uh, Tim Mayer, in 1951, in the 51, 52 seasons, they started drafting because the draft was there, was in by then, right? So they started bringing in black players by then. They did. But what happened during these 12 years? That That's my only thing. <laughs> you're not even looking in the direction of an HBCU. If you're listening, if you're listening to me, all the proof in the world is there. Okay, this isn't an opinionated show. I'm giving you the facts. Now, am I throwing a little bit of an opinion? Maybe. But this, I, I mean, I can't deny what I'm reading and what I'm seeing and what I know. You put the pieces together, though. But maybe, just maybe, the NFL, while in the quest to find popularity, and they kind of did like some kid in high school or middle school in order to be popular. 
you know, just like Major League Baseball was all white, they would do the exact same thing, but they missed out on a lot of black talent. Thank God for Haley Harding, you know, the African-American columnist for the Los Angeles Tribune. He's the one who called out the Rams organization for moving from Cleveland in 1945 to L.A. in 1946 and say, hey, look, you can't play in this publicly funded venue without putting integrating your team. And they had to follow suit. Same thing. The Kennedy administration did the exact same thing to George Preston Marshall in 1961. You're not going to play in this stadium and not integrate your team. <laughs> he had to acquiesce to their request. I use the big word. What I can say that not only during that 12 years, both African-Americans and the NFL, okay, those fans that, that y'all, that you missed out on a lot of talent. With those African Americans missed out on being able to play in the NFL because you know they got the Heisman right in the forehead. The NFL, those coaches and those fans, they missed out. They really did. That's it. That's it. References. Thanks to ProFootballReference.com, ProFootballHallOfFame.com, also the El Dorado News Times. Uh, this was entitled History Minute. J. Mayo Williams makes it into the Blues Hall of Fame. And this was written by Dr. Ken Bridges, February 10th, 2021. Also, Duke Slater, NFL's first black lineman, is now a Hall of Famer. This was a story by the AP USA Today, July 21st, 2021. Also, Encyclopedia Dubik. Okay, that's the website of the school that Soul Butler went to. Hopefully, I'm saying it right, okay? Also, ProFootballHallOfFame.com. This was the Black Pioneers, the early Black Pioneers. And this one was actually, uh, this was actually Charles Follis led early Black Pioneers in pro football. That was the title. <laughs> that was the title. Also, BlackHistory365.com. Also, we have Black History in America. This was focused on Ray Kemp through myblackhistory.net. Also, a lot of books here. The League, how five rivals created the NFL and launched a sports empire by John Eisenberg. A Hard Road to Glory, the African-American athlete in football by Arthur R. Ashe Jr. Outside the Lines, African-Americans and the Integration of the National Football League by Charles K. Ross. Rise of the Black Quarterback, What It Means for America by Jason Reed and also one of my favorites, America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written by Jerry Rice. Yep, that Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast presented by Belly Up Sports. Belly Up Sports Podcast Network, Belly Up Media. Of course, I'm your host, Michael Neal Jr., Please go to our website at bellyupsports.com. Click on it, read the articles, check out the merch. And you can catch us on our new home base of Megaphone, M-E-G-A-P-H-O-N. Oh, I can't spell M-E-G-A-P-H-O-N-E-E-E, all right? Also, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Tell all your friends and family about this show, or I will find your house. I'm out.